How did Jeff Bezos realize you could sell anything on the internet? Why did Bill Gates create Control-Alt-Delete? How did synchronized swimming prepare Christine Lagarde for international politics? What made Bob Iger bet big on Marvel? And what inspired Diane von Furstenberg to create the wrap dress? On The David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer conversations, I uncover the untold stories of the world's most successful leaders. Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to For the Ages, a history podcast presented by the New York Historical Society and hosted by David Rubenstein. Join us as he deftly explores the rich and complex history of the United States with some of the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers, because history matters. Hello, I'm David Rubenstein, and I'm at the Tisch WNET studios at Lincoln Center. And I am pleased to say I'm with Ron Chernow, who's a Pulitzer Prize winning biographer and one of America's most distinguished writers. Ron, thank you very much for giving us your time today. I'm pleased to be with you, David. Thank you. So let me talk a little bit about your own background before we talk about your latest book on uh, General and President Grant. So you grew up in New York? I was born in Brooklyn, grew up in Forest Hills, Queens. Then I did uh, two degrees in English literature, one at Yale University and one at Cambridge University. And I never studied history. This is my dirty little secret. So everything that I've written about in my adult life has been self-taught. You graduated from Yale in 1970, mm -hmm. I recall. And so from 1970 to 1990, uh, you were writing magazine articles, journal articles. You were not, you hadn't written a book, is that correct? Right. The House of Morgan was my first book that right. came out in 1990. And, and so when I was a freelance magazine writer, uh, I was doing um, feature stories, profiles, investigative reporting. I published in about uh, 20 or 30 different uh, publications. It's kind of a whole side of my life that uh, people don't know about. But freelance writing is not exactly something that puts you in the Forbes 400, is that right? No, it's a very, very punishing way to make a living. Now, also what I felt was that I was, um, I was a reasonably good um, journalist, but I think a much better uh, book writer. You know, writers uh, divide into sprinters and marathon runners, and I was a decent uh, Ron, but as those who've read my very long books know, I'm much better as a marathon man. So your first book was on the House of Morgan. Right. And you followed it up with a book on the Warburgs. Warburgs, right. And then a book on John D. Rockefeller. Yes, called Titan. Mm -hmm. And each of these books was 600, 700 pages? Or uh, even a little bit longer. Okay. And did your publisher ever say maybe a, a shorter book would be read by more people? No, the strange thing is that I've uh, written these um, gigantic narratives and uh, the books have not only uh, had critical success, but um, almost all of them have been bestsellers and have sold in astonishing quantities. Uh, you know, what I found, David, is that the public is very eager to be um, uh, educated as long as they feel that they're being entertained. Uh, at the same time. And uh, also, lovers of history and biography actually like to wallow in long sagas. So the length of my books is not as much um, of a hindrance as you might imagine. So if you wrote <laughs> these three books on important people in the American financial right. system, uh, you decided to go into a different direction. There was somebody very important in the American financial system, Alexander Hamilton. Yeah, who was, who was a perfect transitional figure for me because there was certainly enough financial history that I knew that it would appeal to readers of my first three books. Now, Alexander Hamilton was reasonably well-known, but I would say the least well-known of the founding fathers compared to some of, let's say, Washington, perhaps, or Jefferson. But 
a young man named Lynn Manuel Miranda. I've heard of that guy. He apparently, on the way to vacation in Mexico, picked up a copy of your book, read it there while he was relaxing, right. and then came up with the idea of a play that was in rap. Now, did he tell you about this at some point, and what did you tell him? Well, I met Lynn in the fall of 2008. He was still starring in his first musical, which was called uh, In the Heights. He invited me to a Sunday matinee. I found out from a mutual friend that he had read the book in Mexico and had made a profound impression on him. And I went backstage and I said, so Lynn, I gather my Hamilton book made an impression on you. And he said, Ron, as I was reading the book on vacation, hip hop songs started rising off the page. And then he said to me, he said, you know, Hamilton's life is a cl classic hip hop narrative. And I'm thinking, pal, I have no idea what you're talking about. Right. And then we were off and running. He asked me on the spot to be the historical advisor to this as yet non-existent show. So um, <laughs> after you'd written Hamilton and before it became so famous, uh, you wrote another book uh, on George Washington, for which you won the Pulitzer Prize. So do you think George Washington is sitting in heaven saying, look, why didn't he do a play about me? I'm more important than Alexander Hamilton. Why didn't he do a play about me? Have you ever thought about that? Well, you know, it was Lynn's inspiration to match up hip hop with uh, Hamilton. And I didn't understand the connection at first. But I think what it is is that the way that Lynn presents him in the play, which is accurate, is... Uh, as a very intense and driven personality. In the hip hop, music and lyrics is very intense and driven. So there's a perfect match okay. between the style and sensibility of the man and the hip hop music. But Washington's life did not move to a hip hop beat and certainly Grant's life did not move to a hip hop beat. Well, let's talk about uh, the book that you wrote after Washington and the, before the one you're working right. on now, yeah. Mark Twain, which will come out in four or five years or something Probably. like that? Mm -hmm. Okay, so this is a book on General Grant and President Grant, Ulysses S. Grant. Many people would say, why do we need another book on Grant? Everybody knows he won the uh, Civil War as a good general, alcoholic perhaps, and then he was a terrible president, corrupt and so forth. That's the general wisdom. In fact, when I was growing up, when you see lists of presidents, he and James Buchanan would be at the bottom of the worst presidents. Yeah, well, I, you know, in the book, I try to retire, you know, three chief myths about uh, Grant. Number one, that, uh, you know, he was the victorious general in the Union, um, with the Union Army in the Civil War. Simply, he was a brutal butcher who would hurl thousands of young men to their death. In fact, he was a brilliant and sophisticated uh, strategist. I try to combat this notion that he was kind of a hopeless drunkard who stumbled through the Civil War in an alcoholic haze. And most importantly, I try to counter the, the notion that it was a failed presidency dominated purely by scandals and nepotism and uh, corruption. Grant had been preceded by five generals in Virginia, George McClellan, uh, John Pope, Ambrose Burnside, uh, Joe Hooker, and George Gordon Meade. Those five generals uh, had the exact same advantages of manpower and materiel that Ulysses S. Grant had and had not been able to defeat Robert E. Lee. Ulysses S. Grant did. So clearly something was going on other than the fact that the North had a larger population, greater manufacturing capacity. You do say in your book that he did have an alcoholic problem. It was a binge drinking kind of problem, but not one that kept him from doing what he needed to do when he needed to do it. Is that right? Yeah. You know, there were many people who worked closely with Grant who said, I never saw him touch a drop of uh, liquor. And then others, you know, had very different uh, accounts. I had to reconcile that. Well, what I discovered, he was a binge drinker. Uh, he could go for two or three months without touching a drop of alcohol, only to succumb to a two or three day spree, as they called it. But he had a tremendous sense of responsibility. He never drank on the eve of a battle, certainly never drank uh, during a battle. But afterwards, when the pressure was off, he would slip 
slip away to a town where his men could not see him, and he would have a two or three day um, bender. Um, he, he was not kind of a drunkard. Somehow that term conjures up a, um, an irresponsible person indulging uh, this weakness. And actually, by the time he was president, he had largely conquered the, the problem. And the third myth, you might say, is that he was um, a corrupt president and his presidency was a failed presidency. And you think that is not fair because of what? Um, the, the corruption did happen uh, in his administration. Grant was not personally involved in it. He did not condone it. He, he prosecuted it. But those things were real. But what I tried to show in the book was that that was, to my mind, however real, the minor story of the administration, the major story is what he did to protect the four million former slaves who had become full-fledged right. American citizens after the uh, Civil War, and particularly Grant's very courageous crusade to stamp out the Ku Klux Klan in the South. So he was born in Ohio? Yeah, he was born in the southwestern corner of Ohio, um, just outside of uh, Cincinnati today, three small towns. Uh, he was born Hiram Ulysses Grant. The boys mercilessly teased him about the initials H-U-G, so he dropped the Hiram right. and he became uh, Ulysses. The S was added by accident when the local congressman nominated him for West Point. But he didn't really want to go to West Point, as I understand it. His father kind of proposed him, but did he go reluctantly to West Point? <clears throat> very reluctantly. He didn't want to go, but his father was very stingy. And his father saw West Point as a free form of vocational right. education. Grant was so unhappy at West Point that while he was at West Point, there was a debate in the U.S. Congress about uh, possibly abolishing West Point. And Grant later wrote that he was rooting for Congress to abolish the academy so he could go back to Ohio. So he graduates roughly, I think, 21st out of 39. Yeah, students, so he's in the middle of the class, yeah. So he then gets assigned to what, what was his assignment initially? Yeah, he, he went to a place called Jefferson Barracks in, uh, in St. Louis. And then, most importantly for the Civil War Service, uh, he served for four years in the Mexican uh, War as a quartermaster. And when he was in the Mexican War, there was another young. Uh, military leader who was also there named Robert E. Lee? Robert E. Lee was, uh, okay, there was a significant kind of age and rank difference because Lee was older and hence, you know, higher up. Uh, Lee was on the staff of uh, General Winfield Scott, who was the chief commander in uh, Mexico. And interestingly enough, David, you know, the time of Appomattox, when Lee and Grant finally meet, Grant had very distinct recollections of um, meeting Lee in the Mexican War, and Lee said that there were many times during the Civil War when he tried to remember Grant and could not. The reason being that Lee finishes the Mexican War brevet lieutenant colonel, Grant finishes the Mexican War brevet captain, so there was a significant difference in rank between them. Well, as a general rule of thumb, yeah. uh, lower level people look up to upper level people. Sometimes That's they remember right. them, and the other way they don't look down and remember them. Exactly. So, so Grant was invisible. To, to so uh, he's in the military, and eventually uh, he gets assigned to California right? Uh, because there's the gold rush and he needs to go out there to have some troops out there, I guess, to protect somebody. Yeah, that was partly it. Uh, that, that was why troops were out there. Uh, so he's assigned to these rather lonely um, uh, bases uh, in Oregon, in Northern California. Uh, his army pay was very meager, which meant that he could not bring his wife and children out there. And as often happened in Grant's life when he was kind of lonely and depressed and inactive, he started to drink and shows up one day at a pay table for his men drunk and he's rummed out of the army. And that, that um, history 
really shadowed him through the Civil War. He wasn't court-martialed, but he um, had said he wouldn't get drunk again. He did, and he more or less resigned. Is that Yeah, right? and he was kind of threatened with court-martial, you know, so, so he voluntarily resigned in order to avoid right. that. And then he goes back to St. Louis. Um, his wife, uh, Julia, daughter of a, a slaveholder, Julia had gotten a wedding present of 60 acres of land just outside St. Louis. So Grant becomes uh, a farmer and fails at it. Okay. Uh, but the problem is that his father, Grant's father, hates the idea of slavery, and uh, his wife's father is a slave owner. The Grants are abolitionists. The, the Dents, his in-laws, are, are slaveholders. And um, the Grants were so outraged at the idea of Ulysses marrying into a slave-owning family. You know, Julia had grown up surrounded by about 20, 30 slaves. Uh, the entire Grant family boycotted the wedding in St. Louis in 1848. So long before Fort Sumter, Grant is involved in his own private right. civil war. But then the most amazing part of the book, and maybe his life, is this. The civil war breaks out. Yeah. He's out of the military. Yeah. He's selling firewood on the streets of St. Louis to make a living, just selling firewood. And this is when the war breaks out. And then before the war's over, he's the commanding general. I mean, it's an incredible transformation. Yeah, okay, so um, two months after the Civil War breaks out, he's a colonel. Four months later, he's a brigadier general. 10 months later, he's a major general. And by the end of the war, he's general in chief of the Union Army with a million men under his command. This was somebody who, before the war, hardly ever had anyone under his, you know. But how did that happen? When the Civil War breaks out, David, a, a third of the officers in the regular army were from the South, defect to the South. So there's a very acute shortage of uh, officers. Grant had all that West Point lore stored in his head. Very significantly, when he was in Mexico, as a quartermaster, he was not required to fight any of the fights, but he made it a point of fighting in every fight. That was purely voluntary. This is kind of real courage. So he had kind of four years of actual combat um, experience, as well as you know the training at uh, West right. Point. And so all of that kind of army lore suddenly flickers to life. So he's um, in charge of some part of the volunteer force of Illinois, and gradually he does well, and he gradually gets more and more responsibility. But his two big victories at that part of the war were in Shiloh and Vicksburg. Why is Vicksburg, Mississippi, such an important place in the Civil War? So the one bastion that's left for the South uh, is Vicksburg. When that falls, what happens is that it slices the Confederacy in half. And a lot of the Confederate supplies, particularly um, uh, horses and cattle, were west of the Mississippi. So the Confederate Army, Confederate supplies, they're suddenly on opposite sides of a river controlled by the Union Army. So he prevails in Vicksburg, <coughs> which is a great help to the Union. Oh. And shortly after that, Lincoln says, this guy can win battles. Why don't I bring him up and make him the general for all of the military, is that right? Yeah, I mean, he's winning battle after battle in the, in the West. Then what happens in February uh, 1864, Congress revives the rank of lieutenant general, the rank that had only been held by uh, George Washington. So um, he ultimately is put in charge of the entire Union force, and in the end, it gets down to his fighting against Robert E. Lee for the control of Richmond in that area. Is that right? Yeah, what happens? So, so he pins down uh, Robert E. Lee and his army in uh, Richmond and Petersburg, and then remember, Grant had been quartermaster, so his strategy against Lee um, is to, he systematically cuts off every railroad link and every canal link that has been feeding the Confederate Army as Phil Sheridan clean out the Shenandoah Valley, which was the breadbasket of the Confederate Army. That's why Robert E. Lee suddenly has to break out and escape to Appomattox Courthouse. So in the end, um, 
the Appomattox effort doesn't really prevail. Lee is uh, recognizing he needs to surrender. And so how does he communicate that to Grant? Oh, well, they, they exchanged messages. And Grant, interestingly, said that uh, when he first gets the message that Lee is ready to surrender, he was jubilant. But then he became sad and depressed. And there's a beautiful passage in his memoir where he said, I felt like anything other than rejoicing over the downfall of a foe who had fought so long and gallantly and had suffered so much for cause, though that cause was the worst for which they could have fought. Now, earlier in his yeah. military career, he was seen as demanding unconditional surrender, and U.S. Grant was <clears throat> said to stand for unconditional <laughs> surrender right. grant. Yeah. But when he meet at Appomattox, what does he do? Okay, um, he immediately issues rations for the starving Confederate soldiers. He allows the Confederate officers to retain their horses and, and sidearms. Um, he does not allow his men to, to gloat or celebrate. He was afraid that this would embitter the South and make reconciliation after the war impossible. And there was also a very kind of real fear at that point that the Confederate army would kind of, you know, flee to the hills and fight on, you know, uh, in guerrilla warfare. Grant is a conquering hero. And he's in Washington, D.C. And one night uh, after Lincoln made a speech that was heard by John Wilkes Booth, yeah. uh, Lincoln invites the Grants to go to him, with, well, go with him and Mrs. Lincoln to Ford's Theater. Why did the Grants not go? Um, Abraham and Mary Lincoln uh, had visited Grant at his headquarters in um, City Point, Virginia. Um, that attended a military review, and at that review, Mary Lincoln, who was having distinct psychological problems at this point, um, Mary Lincoln sees the beautiful young wife of General Edward O.C. Ord riding next to her husband. She flies into a jealous rage. This was completely in her mind. Julia Grant tries to intervene to protect Mrs. Ord, and as so often happens when you intervene in these situations, then Mary Lincoln turned on Julia, um, and so, um, and Julia felt very bruised by this encounter. So the night that the Lincolns were going to Ford Theater, Julia had announced to her husband that she refused to go to any social event that Mary Lincoln was going to be at. So they cooked up an excuse that they were going to take a train to their house in Burlington, New Jersey. You know, had Grant uh, been with Lincoln in the box at Ford's Theater that night, maybe Grant would have had a security entourage. Maybe Grant, with his military instincts, would have sensed something. Or maybe Grant would have been killed along with Lincoln. So uh, Lincoln's mm -hmm. killed. Grant comes back to Washington. Um, he doesn't really know that well. The vice president now becomes yeah. the president, but he tries to work with him. Is that right? That's uh, yeah. He, tr Johnson. He, he, he tries first year, or so you know they have a fairly good uh, relationship. But Grant later said that Johnson was revengeful, passionate, and opinionated. And basically, what they clashed about was Reconstruction. Grant was a strong supporter of Reconstruction. Um, Johnson was doing everything he could to. Undermined. So President Johnson is impeached by the House, mm -hmm. and in the Senate he is not convicted by one vote. Mm -hmm. So he stays in office, yeah. but clearly couldn't have been reelected or right. elected. Yeah. So the Republican Party needs a candidate, and when you have a winning general, sometimes those generals get nominated. So did he really want to be President of the United States? You know, I think he did. He was genuinely reluctant to give up his job as uh, general-in-chief, which he loved. He was also giving up his military pension becoming president, and there was no, not a presidential pension yet. Right. And so here was someone who had had a lot of financial insecurity. So that was there. But no, I think he did want to be president. So he now becomes president, and uh, what, what does he want to accomplish as president? Very importantly, Grant was the first president um, to preside um, uh, when the 15th Amendment was in effect. 15th Amendment gave black males the right to vote. 
Um, this had triggered a violent backlash in the South because a lot of the southern states had large black populations. Uh, South Carolina and Mississippi had a majority of, of blacks. The Klan starts a reign of terror um, that um, murders thousands of uh, blacks in the South without any prosecutions. Grant appoints a crusading attorney general named Amos Ackerman from, from Georgia who brings uh, 3,000 indictments, uh, wins 1,000 convictions against the Klan, and crushes the Klan. I think it's one of the great um, acts in presidential history that uh, he, he did this, and Grant was really uh, militant on the issue. So uh, there are a lot of scandals in the Grant administration. Mm -hmm. Is that because Grant himself is putting money in his pocket or just friends of his unbeknownst to him, are putting money in their pocket. Yeah, it was, it, it was the latter. You know, Grant himself was very honest during the war. He's always rooting out uh, corruption and profiteering and things like that. Grant was an incurably naive man when it came to business, David, and there was just no learning curve. It's not like he kind of is burned and then he learns his uh, lesson. And so, um, you know, the, the worst scandal during his administration, so-called whiskey ring, uh, his own chief of staff, Orville Babcock, was uh, in cahoots with the people who were evading these whiskey uh, taxes, and Grant found it completely incomprehensible. He wrote a letter to Orville Babcock's wife saying, I can't believe that this man whom I've had you know, such intimate relations with for 14 years uh, could be deceiving me this way. Well, guess what? He was deceiving Grant, and Grant goes on being cheated and deceived for the rest of his life. So. Grant is uh, not the most successful president in the view of people then because there were some yeah. scandals, yeah. but nonetheless he gets renominated and reelected. Yeah, and then what happens, you know, in the middle of his um, second term in 1874, the midterm elections, as we all know, um, the, the Democrats come back into power in Congress armed with subpoena and investigative power, and they are opposed to Reconstruction. And so the way that they really undermine Grant is by launching all these investigations into corruption and in Grant's administration. It was really kind of a way of discrediting Grant, which also was a way of discrediting Reconstruction. And it had kind of a powerful influence, and certainly it's had a powerful influence on uh, historians writing about the period. So if you look at the eight years that he did serve as yeah. president, what would you say his major accomplishment was? Well, well certainly, you know, crushing the Klan and, and protecting the black community uh, in the South. But there were other major um, uh, accomplishments. Um, very emotional issue after the war. There was a con Confederate blockade runner called the Alabama. Uh, Americans wanted um, reparations uh, from it. Uh, Grant got international arbitration, a $15 million uh, payment. Uh, he began uh, civil service reform. He cleaned up a lot of the corruption okay. on the Indian uh, reservations, on and on. So actually he had a very good record. So he's only in his 50s when he leaves office. Yeah, and, and he had this tremendous wanderlust. He was a great traveler. He takes um, an around-the-world tour uh, that lasts for, I think, two years and, and four months. He visits everyone. I mean, he visits, you know, Queen Victoria at Windsor Castle and Prince von Bismarck in, in Berlin, the, the Pope in Rome. And wherever he goes, he draws enormous crowds, sometimes as many but as... But why would that be? Because people would say, you weren't that successful a president. Why was he so popular overseas? Well, again, um, you know, Ulysses Grant was the most famous American uh, after um, Abraham Lincoln in the second half of the 19th uh, century. And uh, people knew that he was the hero of the, uh, of, of the Civil War. And again, his, his, his record as president was better than it was characterized, you know, for many okay. years afterwards. After he comes back from yeah. his around-the-world tour, he says, like many people who've had yeah. power, 
well, maybe I could do this again. Maybe I should have a third term, yeah. and that was allowed then. Uh, how close did he come to being nominated for a third term, and did he really want to be president again? There, there were two things I think that were very important to him in terms of uh, getting a third uh, term. Number one, in the South, all of the um, you know Republican carpetbag administrations uh, you know had been uh, overturned. So there were these Redeemer governments in the South, which were launching Jim Crow. He felt that that reversed the verdict of the war. He also felt that having traveled to all these foreign countries, that he had a much deeper understanding of foreign affairs than he had before. So he felt in kind of those two areas, he could make a real contribution. But in the end, he doesn't get the nomination. Get, yeah, Garfield wins. Yeah. So he doesn't go back to Illinois or Ohio. He yeah. goes to New York, right. and uh, he decides to get involved in the financial community a little bit. And what happened that was so terrible to his reputation? Uh, a few years before he dies, uh, he formed a partnership called Grant and Ward with a young man named Ferdinand Ward, who was 29 years old, lionized as the young Napoleon of uh, finance. Uh, a lot of people invest with Grant and Ward, really on the strength of Grant's name. Grant, again, incurably naive, uh, has uh, uh, entered into a partnership with the Bernie Madoff of his day. And Grant was very complacent. Ferdinand Ward would put letters in front of him. Grant would sign it without reading it. Uh, Ward would not let him actually look at the stock certificates in the in, in the safe. And the whole thing is a, is a great big Ponzi scheme. Grant wakes up one morning. Grant thinks he's worth several million dollars. He wakes up one morning and discovers that he's worth $80 and Julia's worth $130. So all of their life savings have gone up in smoke. So he's basically broke, and so he does something that he hadn't wanted to do before, which is to write his autobiography, in effect. He writes his, his Civil War uh, memoirs, and his publisher is uh, Mark Twain. I'm always asked, did Mark Twain write the memoirs? Now, Twain said his um, influence was limited to trivial matters of grammar and uh, punctuation. It was written by Grant. Grant had always actually been a very, very good um, writer. He's at the same time that he's writing the memoirs, he's dying of cancer of the throat. He'd been and, a and, big and cigar smoker. Uh, during Civil War, he smoked 20 cigars a day. But the thing that's often interesting yeah. to people who are presidential scholars is it is universally agreed that the greatest presidential autobiography was written by Ulysses S. Grant. Yeah, that doesn't deal with his presidency. That's right. That's interesting yeah, because yeah. It's not, doesn't, it only deals with his Civil War period of time. Yeah, right. And would he, was he planning to write about the presidency or he just didn't live No, I mean, that? I think that, um, you know, he was doing this for money. He was afraid that when he died of this throat cancer that Julia would be left destitute. They'd lost all their money. So he's doing this, you know, purely as a financial... Uh, proposition, but he gets into it, and suddenly he's kind of reliving his uh, glory days. But he never had an intention about writing um, about his presidency. And of course, the tremendous market was for a memoir about his generalship during the Civil War. So just as he finishes the memoir, he dies. Uh, he puts down his pen literally a few days before he, right. he, he... It's like he willed himself to stay alive to finish it. Will we be seeing any hip-hop plays on Grant? No, but this is going to be a feature film directed by Steven Spielberg, produced by Leonardo DiCaprio, and possibly starring Leonardo DiCaprio. Really? Yes. <laughs> well, congratulations on your success with that book and with Hamilton, and thank you very much for your time, Ron. My pleasure, David. Thank you for having me. On behalf of the New York Historical Society, thank you for joining us for another episode of For the Ages, a history podcast, hosted by David Rubenstein. We hope you enjoyed it and come back for more. Thanks for your support. You can share your thoughts at public.programs at nyhistory.org.